the reading before Alan's lesson this morning is Ephesians 3. It's going to be verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, accordingly to his power is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you have uh, seen a church bulletin for this week, you know that at the evening service at 6 o'clock, John and Troy will be presenting a report on the work that they uh, were able to accomplish in the Philippines. And I know particularly for those of us who are members of this congregation, that's very important. And we would encourage you to be present for that service if at all possible. When we hear the word estimate, we usually think first in terms of a statement, whether verbal or printed, regarding the cost of work to be done. For instance, uh, let's suppose that you're involved in a minor automobile accident and you take your car to a repair shop so that they can tell you how much it will cost to fix the damage. That's an estimate. Or let's say you want some work done at your house and based on what you want done, someone will tell you this will cost X dollars to do. An estimate, then, is the value that's placed on something. When we use the verb form estimate, we are talking about the act of assigning a value to something. We estimate what it's worth. What is this watch worth? What is this ring worth? And we determine the worth of something as it, as it is estimated Now, switching from those physical things, it seems as if the estimation of the church today is pretty low in the minds of many people. And you get that idea by some of the things that are said about the church. And you may have heard these. Why should I be a part of the church? I can have just as good a relationship with God outside of the church. I don't need to be in the church. Or maybe someone says, Church? Nah, not me. Too many hypocrites in the church. I don't want to be a part of that. Whatever the thinking might be, church membership, and I'm using the term in a very broad way, is very low in our country. Statistics back that up. You can go on the internet and you can see how church membership, in a general sense, has been declining over the years. That brings a question to mind. Why? Why this low estimate of the church? I'm sure we don't know all the reasons. But but here are some possibilities that we could imagine. One of them would be apathy. Sadly, many people in America have become indifferent about spiritual matters. They just don't care. 
And perhaps it is our abundance in material things that has left many people in spiritual poverty. You recall in Luke, the 12th chapter, Jesus spoke about a rich man who said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. That was his estimate. I have a lot for a long time. But when God spoke, he said, Fool, you're not a bright man, you're a fool. Because this very night your soul is required of you. And then whose will these things be? His estimate was wrong, wasn't it? What about biblical ignorance? Well, let's face it, okay? A lot of people have no idea what God's Word actually says about the church. They don't read their Bible, so how could they know? And if they depend on other sources to tell them about how important the church is, they are very certain to get misinformation. We understand how faulty human reasoning can be. Centuries ago, the prophet Jeremiah recorded in Jeremiah 10 verse 23, it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. The only thing we can do when we determine what ought to be done is to mess up to get ourselves in trouble. Maybe it's not apathy or biblical ignorance. Maybe it's corruption of the ideal. Even before the close of the New Testament, there were warnings, inspired warnings, about apostasy and the reality of it coming. Paul warned in Acts the 20th chapter and the 30th verse that there would be some who would draw away the disciples after themselves. Not to God, but away from God and to themselves. Peter warned of false teachers in 2 Peter 2 and verse uh, verse chapter 2. You see, multiplication of religious groups has not helped, it's hurt. And it has led to a great deal of confusion. It has led to a lack of confidence in religion in general. Many people look at, at the multiplication of religious groups and they say, I don't have any idea what I ought to do to be a part of one of these. How do we get a correct estimate of the church? Perhaps we could find some clarity by asking three questions. And that's what I want to mention to you this morning. First of all, what is God's estimate of the church? That's the place we ought to start, isn't it? How does God value the church? The only way we can know that for sure is to go to His Word because that's the only way we learn about how God thinks about things. And time won't allow us to talk about all the Bible says about the church. And by the way, that's a lot. We could perhaps begin in the Old Testament, talk about prophecies, about the coming church, the kingdom that would be established. Or we could go to Matthew, the 16th chapter, and talk about Jesus' promise to build His church. Matthew 16, verse 18. We could, he assured in that context that even death, the gates of Hades, would not prevail against it. We could go to the book of Acts and we could see the glorious beginning of the church and its splendid growth. Acts 11.21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed. 
and turn to the Lord. Or we could look at how many inspired letters are in the New Testament written to churches and individuals working with churches. To Timothy, Paul would pen in 1 Timothy 3 verse 15, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We could even see in the final book of the New Testament, Revelation, how there are seven letters written to individual churches with powerful lessons for each one of them. We could do that. Or perhaps instead we could briefly look at what is found in just one letter, the one written to the church in Ephesus. You heard the reading a few moments ago, but turn in your Bible, if you will, to Ephesians. I'm going to give you just a little bit of time to get there, Ephesians. I want you to notice with me how saturated this letter is concerning the church. In chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Paul tells us that Christ is the head over all things to the church. If the Son of God exercises authority over the church, is that significant? Ephesians 1.23, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is His body. Is that important? The body of Christ? The very same verse lets us know that it's the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Would we want to be included in that fullness? Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here Paul reminds us that the church is part of God's eternal purpose, not just a sudden purpose, an eternal purpose. And should we want to participate in and cooperate with God's eternal purpose? Should we want to recognize that the church is evidence of His manifold, multifaceted wisdom? If you look at chapter 3, verse 21, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God receives glory in the church and note it is to all generations on and on, unending. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the apostle would write, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and He is Savior of the body. Paul teaches that Jesus saves the body, the church. Some people have argued, hey, the church can't save you. That's absolutely correct. It can't. But doesn't this verse say whom Christ saves? And isn't that the church? Where are those passages after the beginning of the church in Acts 2 that extol salvation outside of the church? Don't, don't spend much time looking, folks, because it's not there. There are no verses that say you can be saved outside the church just as well as inside the church. 
And then finally in Ephesians 5 verse 25, the apostle would say, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. If Christ loved the church so much that he would die for it to be a reality, shouldn't it be important to us? The next two verses, 26 and 27, speak of the sanctifying of the church and the washing of the church. We know in Revelation 1 verse 5, the the washing is through the blood of Christ. Shouldn't we want to be sanctified, set apart? Shouldn't we want to be washed? I said finally, let me mention one more, verses 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Will you note? Just as Christ does the church. For we are members of His body. We are members of the body of Christ. And and even as we care for our physical bodies, Christ cares for the church. Is that important? I think when you consider all the New Testament teaches about the church, the only honest conclusion that you can come to is that He, God, estimates the church as having great value. So great that He would plan it from eternity, that it would show His wisdom, that it would be the body of His beloved Son. Here's the second question. What is the estimate of those promoting denominations? The word denominate simply means to give a name to or designate. It's not a bad term in itself. You go to the bank and you want to cash a check and you're old-fashioned like me. Instead of going through the drive-thru, you go up to the window and you talk to a teller. You have a check for $100 and made out to you and he asks you, how do you want this? What he's saying is, what denominations? Do you want 250s? Do you want 520s? Do you want 1010s? Do you want a mixture of them? What denominations do you want? That's not bad. But what about denomination when we're talking about religious groups? Is that also not bad? Well, if you were able to find a copy of the Westminster Dictionary of Church History, which incidentally is not published by anyone associated with the Churches of Christ, just a general reference book of church history. And you looked under the definition of denominationalism, you would see what's wrong with it. Here's the definition, a quote. The system and ideology found on the division of the religious population into numerous numerous ecclesiastical bodies, each stressing particular values or traditions and each competing with each other in the same community under substantial conditions of freedom. Get that? It's long. But within that definition, you see what's wrong with denominationalism. First of all, you caught the word division. It is a division Is that what Christ prayed for in John 17? No. It is a denominationalism recognizes distinctive doctrinal differences. What's ironic about that is that even with those differences, sometimes denominations will say, 
they don't make any difference. Hey, let's go back to the bank again and you give the man a check for $100 and he gives you whatever he wants to give you back. Does that make a difference? In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, Paul pled with his brethren in Corinth that they all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Now if that was true within a local body, wouldn't it be true in the bigger body of Christ? Would Paul have thought no divisions in the local church, but it's okay for all different religious groups to be divided? And then you you saw a reference to what would be called particular or specific traditions. That's what you find in denominations, traditions. Some of them are very old. But the truth is, none of them are old enough to be found in God's Word. The traditions have been started by men, perpetuated by men, and are currently practiced by men. And then the the cap of it, I guess, is the rivalry rather than true cooperation. You know, when Paul likened by inspiration members of the church to a body, he acknowledged that they had different functions. But the point of noticing the difference within the body is that those different functions cooperated, not competed. And denominationalism is now and will always be a matter of competition. Sometimes we hear denominational people say, well, it doesn't really matter where you go to church. I guarantee you there's not a church in Rosenberg or Richmond or Houston or anyone in the world that's a denomination where the preacher's getting up today and saying, we don't care if you come here or not. You can go anywhere just as good. They're going to be competing. Come here, do this, be a part of us. You know, Jesus spoke in John 10, 16 of a time when His people would all be one flock. Rather than the separation of Jews and Gentiles, which was itself a serious division, Jesus said, all my people are going to be just one flock. Not many flocks, but one flock. If people really estimated the value of denominationalism in the light of God's Word, they could not honestly say that the estimate should be highly placed. And those who who extol the idea of being a part of the church of your choice do not share God's estimate of the one and only body of Christ. Each person who looks at denominationalism has to answer at least several questions. We mentioned one of them earlier. Is this what Christ prayed for? Here is Jesus close to the time of His crucifixion. It's a very earnest prayer in John 17, and he prays to the Father of his followers that they may all be one. Just as you and I, Father, are one. And so to foster the spirit of competition and separation and rivalry does not honor Christ's prayer. In fact, it works against it. Question two, did the disciples, the apostles, encourage division? Absolutely not. 
In fact, Paul would question the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.13. Is Christ divided? And that was not a question asked for information. He knew the answer. The answer is absolutely not. Christ is not divided. Now, men can be parts of religious groups that are divided, but not Christ's body. It's not divided. And then finally, people would have to ask, what fruit has been produced by by competing religious people? Has it been good? Has the result been helpful? Some people would think, so well, we can go any church we want. But you know, it really doesn't glorify God at all. And, and it not only confuses people, it alienates them. Because they look at all these different religious groups and they say, well, you're all saying that we ought to be a part of you, and so I'll be a part of nothing. Well, one final question, then we're through. What's your estimate of the church? You can find very easily what God's estimation is. You see in the world what denominational people think the church is. What about you? Is your estimate the same as God's estimate? Or is it different? But before you would answer that question, I think you'd have to examine the way you've treated the church. Are you a part of it? How can you say, I think the church has great value just as God does, but I don't want to be a part of it? Do you want to remain outside the body of Christ when every blessing comes to those inside the body of Christ? If you're a part of the church, Are you really living in such a way to show its importance in your life? Do you faithfully attend all the opportunities you have to study and worship with others? Are you a hit and miss person? Do you walk daily as a Christian ought to walk? Do people see Christ living in you and say, that draws me to the church? Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. The glory goes to God. But your life has to show good work. Does your conduct help others to estimate the church in the right way? The good thing is, you have an opportunity this morning to make whatever you need to make right, right. God has allowed you to live long enough so that even if you're not a part of His church, you can be this very morning. By putting your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and turning away from your sins by repenting of them, wanting to change. Having the willingness to stand before others and confess that you do believe Jesus is the Son of God and then allowing yourself to be immersed in water. Your sins can be washed away. You will be added to the Lord's church just as the first Christians were. If you haven't done that, would you like to do it today? And if your life as a Christian, a member of the church, is not reflecting the glory that God intended His church to have, you need to change. If we can help you by praying with you and for you in correcting whatever the problem might be, we will. If you'll come while we stand and sing.